Hello and welcome to another episode of the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And today's guest is my good friend, David Kelly. And it's funny because we talk all the time about how you were just one connection away. And a long time ago, I think about three years ago, I used a magic connection method email to reach out to David because I thought he was doing some really cool things. And since then, we've become really good friends. He's one of the nicest guys I know. And David is one of the marketing wizards behind AppSumo Originals, which has three main products, which is King Sumo, SendFox, and Sumo. And David specifically grew SendFox from zero to over a hundred thousand dollars in monthly revenue with a zero dollar marketing or ad budget and before that he was the first full-time marketer for student loan hero which was sold to lending tree for 60 million dollars in 2018 and in this episode there's plenty of things that we dive into but specifically there are three things i want you to listen for one david's top strategies from building a seven figure business with zero ad budget or marketing budget how to validate a product idea And number three, how to do email marketing the right way. David has a very unique perspective where he runs SendFox, which is an email service provider that has over 40,000 users. So he gets to see behind the scenes of what is working in email marketing today. And he also ran Student Loan Heroes email list, which had a yearly run rate of over seven figures. So he has some really interesting insights on how to do email marketing the right way. So let's cue the theme song and then we can dive right into my conversation with my good friend, David Kelly. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. My man, David Kelly, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for having me here. This is very exciting. We've been longtime friends now, and now we get to share some of our opinions more publicly. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So I figured we'd start. I know you've heard me say this before, but I'm obsessed with your LinkedIn bio. I share it with people all the time just because I love the way that you, <laughs> you articulate it. So. In David's LinkedIn bio, it says, as a kid, I loved playing with Lego. I spent years building a full imaginary town, which included a police station, waterfront properties, a jet ski obstacle course, that sounds exciting, (laughs) and an underground mine with cowboys and bandits. Today, my sense of play still drives me, and I'm happy to say that millions of people have played with the products and ideas that I've helped create. And the reason why I love that so much is because I love the phrase alignment equals velocity. And to me, you were in alignment Mm. with what you wanted to do as a kid. You were just playing. So I think that alignment is really important to make sure that we're flowing and doing the things that we're naturally doing. So the question I wanted to start with is, did little Lego playing David, did he want to be a marketing wizard when he grew up? Or what, was, <laughs> what did little marketing, what did little David want to do? <laughs> yeah, that's such a fun question, man, because I think it's really interesting. And what I'm reminded of right now is that famous Steve Jobs Stanford speech where he says, you know, you can only really figure out the thread or view the thread when you're looking in the past. And I think that's very true in this case. When I was younger, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And even when I graduated college, my first couple jobs, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So there was some time that it took to really fill in those gaps. And as time went on, it's kind of interesting because I look back now and I'm like, yeah, everything 
in my life was aligned for me to be an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of things we do very easy in hindsight to see the effect it has. But I remember when I was in eighth grade, I wrote on a, like a, a dream board or vision board or whatever the equivalent was way back in the day of, I want to just like build products. I want to build things. Mm. And here I am now building things. So it's easy to look back and say, yes, I got here, but it was a very interesting path to actually get here. So what do you think inspired you then as that eighth grader to like start saying, I want to build something? Was there like an event that made you say this, I want to create something that the world will play with? I think there were a few events. So one of the events is my dad passing away when I was younger, I think mm-hmm. really taught me a lot of things, both good and bad. But one of the good things that really empowered me to do is I have a very loving mom and she was like, you can do anything and you can be anything. And also because I only had one parent, I was really on my own to figure things out, right? I was really on my own to try to learn how things work. And that now fits my personality really well in the sense of like, I love creating things and I love building things. And there's a saying I heard recently that really describes entrepreneurship to me. And it's that we're not supposed to be at the top of things. We're supposed to be at the bottom of things. Mm. And I love that saying because there's such a heightened attention nowadays to like responding to texts fast or always reading the latest news articles or anything like that. But I think real creativity and for me, my true happiness comes when I can just totally disconnect and be within my thoughts. And I think real creativity and real business and real change and real kind of growth comes from disconnecting from just the day to day and really going deep into our thought processes and really trying to think of things. I love that. And so, yeah. I mean, you and I have had plenty of conversation. Dave and I talk every every single month. So I have the, the pleasure mm-hmm. of getting to talk about this kind of stuff. But for the people yeah. that are listening, what are some of the ways that you disconnect? Because I know some of the things that you do, <laughs> but would be happy to kind of hear that and have you share the things that have helped you to actually get clear on business when you're disconnected. <laughs> mm. It's been harder during COVID. And part of the reason for that is because now that I'm not doing as many things in person, I live in California, which is just like the worst place in the US to be right now, apparently, right. with everything going on. Uh, it's it's been harder. So I've actually noticed, and I think this is a really interesting example for people to see firsthand, that when we kind of engage in the media and can kind of consume all this information, our state of being and our state of happiness. So for the election, for example, I was really deep in the election. I don't even know how I got there, but it's like I just blacked out <laughs> and suddenly I'm like on this dude's Twitter account, just like looking at these spreadsheets updated in real time on different types of like votes coming in from different counties. It was just, I was like, how the heck did I get here? But when I reflected on that afterwards, I noticed that my emotion was so much more anxious following the election closely. It was so heightened. I felt so much more on edge. I felt like chest pains and all these kind of physical manifestations of just the stress that it was causing. So when I look back at that, that was a real recent practical example of why I try to really do disconnecting as as well as I possibly can. And I think, you know, like all of us kind of go through phases and I think I generally do a good job of it, but this was a good reminder of, of why I do it. So when I think about disconnecting, there are a few things that I do. And one is I check my phone very rarely. And I know you do a lot of things around your phone with notifications and all those things. But the thought I have and, and the principle I have is going back to what I said about my job is to be at the bottom of things as an entrepreneur to really think strategically I can't do that when I'm getting messages all the time. And for a lot of people listening, they probably get even more messages than I do, but getting like a hundred texts a day and emails a day and all these things, 
I can't respond to those and still do what I feel like makes me happy, which is build things and think about things. So staying away from my phone as much as possible, uh, really unwinding at the end of the day is something I've started to do better and better. So post 5 or 6 p.m., for the most part, I'm disconnected. I might check Slack like once before I go to bed or just kind of check my email once before I go to bed. But leaving electronics in the other room as I like go watch a TV show or go eat food or whatever it is and snoozing everything I can possibly snooze as far as notifications go is really helpful for that. That's super powerful. Yeah. You and I love nerding out about ways that we can disconnect and do that kind of stuff. And I know surfing is a huge part of your life as well. Like actually just getting to go (laughs) out there. So maybe we can talk about that later. But anyways, I I love that we started here because I think it's important to consider the fact that disconnecting actually leads to more growth and more progress. And I know that you've done some crazy things as a marketer in your marketing career. And so I would love to kind of dive into some of those things. And I know the most recent venture you've been focusing on is growing SendFox from zero to essentially over 100K in month revenue with basically a $0, $0 budget. <laughs> so I'm sure that's, that, that's a great thing to just dive into. So where, where would you want to start? Like, where do you want to walk us through sure. as far as like how you made that incredible journey and, and what you were doing? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is really noteworthy for a lot of millennials and a lot of younger entrepreneurs. And the thing I'm most proud of, one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is not necessarily the level we've grown SendFox and King Sumo, which isn't just me. We have a great team and we have Noah leading kind of our organization, providing me a lot of guidance. So I definitely can't take credit for everything, maybe a small part, but not everything. <laughs> um, but one of the things that really sticks out to me is that we did it with a $0 ad or marketing budget and a very small team. And the reason why I think this is so important for millennials to see is because with the tech community nowadays and all these businesses, there's kind of this assumption and there's this general trend where it's like, you need VC money, you need investment money, you need angel money and growth just needs to happen so fast. And often it's very unsustainable. And we see that with the long-term vision of businesses that five years later, it looks like it was an awesome business, but we realized they had no real go to market plan. They had no real like product market fit there were just a lot of issues that money was covering up because they could just dump it into acquisition. So what I really, really liked about what we did and what I really want to emphasize for people to do is one, you have to be very clear about who you're serving, who you're serving. So for SendFox, we went in and we had a clear vision of who we wanted to serve. Our hypotheses on how to serve those people turned out to be incorrect until we iterated But we said, hey, we want to serve the underdogs. That's really what Sumo Group is all about. We want to serve the younger entrepreneurs, the new entrepreneurs, the people that are starting side hustles that want to grow their business. We want to serve the underdogs. And more specifically for SendFox, we said we want to serve content creators. So content creators like Noah, because Noah was using MailChimp and he said, yes, I want to find a better solution because as the, the central figure of Sumo Group, as this entrepreneur that's such a famous content creator in the marketing space, I'm so sick of MailChimp. So we saw the direct need to build something for him that then extended to all content creators. And from there, we saw growth a little slower than we probably would have if we took VC money or if we had a huge budget and we just dumped a bunch of money into ads. But we can, and I think this is really important to emphasize, we can build successful companies without taking tons of VC or investment money. We can bootstrap successful companies 
And it's not as seen now as these huge rocket ship growth engines that we see from Silicon Valley, but it was one of the things that I'm most proud of. And I will continue to champion that it's very, very possible for all of us to realize our dreams as entrepreneurs and to build things we want, even if we're just a small team or person behind the scenes and we don't have any money to spend on ads or marketing. I love bootstrapping. Honestly, like I have so much more respect for companies that bootstrap things just because you have to be creative. You have to solve the problems that you have without many resources and it forces you to think outside of the box. So you, you mentioned something yeah. at the very beginning that I want to kind of dive into. You said your initial hypothesis was proved wrong. So mm-hmm. you said that you serve underdogs, content creators. Was that How did you end up arriving at that target market? What was the initial idea and how, how did you make that pivot? So our, our pricing what was, is what was wrong at the beginning. So we did mm. always want to serve kind of these content creators. And when we first started SendFox, as a lot of businesses do, we were more kind of generalized. We we're like, well, we want to serve content creators and maybe small businesses that just want to reduce their MailChimp bill. And we'd go to these people, we'd go to our friends and we'd say, hey, we have this solution called SendFox. We're building it right now. Right now, it does a few things very basically, but we will give you SendFox for 50% less cost per month than your MailChimp bill. So let us know what you're paying for MailChimp and we'll cut that in half and we'll quote that. And here's what's fascinating, right? And I think this is why strategically it's so important to think about our businesses and to realize that even businesses created by successful organizations like us at Sumo Group, every business we create runs into different issues and we're learning things. So most people said no to that. And these were our friends. These were people that we were well connected with. Most people said no to that offer. And when we try to look at it objectively, it's really interesting to understand why, because we look at these things and we say, with any business, with any business we create or I create, what people pay money for is a solution to their problem. And they need to really have like a burning need to that that solution, right? So for 50% lot less costs than MailChimp, people were just like, you know what? I really don't like MailChimp, but moving over my entire email system is not worth the hundreds to thousands of dollars I would save a year. And some of these people were Noah's friends. So they were pretty well-known content creators where money was less of an issue for them. And we thought, Hey, even if it was less of an issue, they'd want to save 50%. And that actually turned out not to be true. So the real secret to how SendFox became successful, this, this million dollar, multi-million dollar business over the entire life of the product so far, two years, is we continue to listen to our users. We continue to iterate on what we thought was most important. And here's the, the important nuance within that. We listen to users that were in our vision. So a lot of people will say, hey, all these users are giving all this feedback and I want to build this product and I want to make this product better for them. The question we always asked ourselves and the question that Noah reminds me of a lot, which is very helpful, is like these people asking for things, are they content creators? Are they within the vision of the business? So not only is it, is it not enough to kind of build a product and iterate the product, we also want to make sure that we're building it for the right people and we're not getting distracted by the noise. So SendFox became successful because we held within that vision of we want a simple, better email tool for content creators. And we're going to add features and we did add features and it got to the point where it's very feature complete now, but we did not add things for people who weren't content creators. So we would have e-commerce stores come to us and be like, Hey, if you sign up or I'm sorry, if you do this one thing, we will sign up. 
and we will give you hundreds of dollars. And we would say to them, we're not for e-commerce stores. I know this probably sounds easy for us to add, but it's just not our market. And we recommend you use something like Clavio instead. And that's a tough pill to swallow uh, to turn people down, but it makes it so much easier to know who we're serving, to be very clear about who we're serving. There's so many things I want to comment on there. It was so valuable. Thank you for sharing that. And the, the first thing that came to my mind is actually on one of the earlier episodes, I had uh, my friend Andre Norman on, and he was an ex-convict who spent, uh, he was sentenced to hundred years in prison and he ended up getting wow. out in 14 years. And he had this That's aha amazing. moment. Well, he would, yeah, it was incredible, but like he had this epiphany moment while he was in solitary confinement that he wanted to get a degree at Harvard. And so one of the questions I had asked him, I was like, okay, so you're like the number one baddest dude in this jail. You're the boss and you get out and all your friends are saying, you know, what, what are they going to react to this new, new idea of you wanted to go to Harvard? And the one thing mm. that Andre said that was so valuable is he's like, Hey, if I'm going to ask for feedback from someone, I'm going to ask for feedback from the right people asking for feedback on my other inmates on how to get to Harvard is not the right person to ask. Asking somebody who's been there is the right person to ask. And that's why I love what you said is because you were asking feedback from the right people. And so that was really, really critical. So I just thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to clarify too, I I, I wanted to clarify too, because there was some, I think you have lots of uh, competence in areas that that I want to unpack in this specific things, because there's a right and a wrong way to listen to users, right? So how Mm. are you asking the right kinds of questions. Because if you ask the wrong questions, even if it is the right user, you get bad feedback that doesn't actually yeah. lead you to where you want to go. So how do you think about conducting those interviews with your users to make sure that you're getting the feedback that's actually valuable that you can use to implement and grow the business? Yeah. Yeah. It evolves over the course of a brand and a product. And in the early days, we were very like clearly talking one-on-one to people on the phone. I still remember my calendar, those first few months we were creating the product, (laughs) uh, which I could probably not do now without just like totally dying from exhaustion. But I remember just being stacked every day with like getting people on the phone and be like, here's a demo of the product. If you want to buy it, here's the cost. Let me know what you're thinking. And now what I like that we do is people are really good at telling you what they don't like. And they're really good at telling you what they did in the past. What they're not very good at is saying like what they want. And by that, I mean, people will ask for everything under the sun if you give them the opportunity, because they're just, that's what they do. We all want more. We all want more stuff. So now the way we do this, and I think this can actually start from day one is we have an automated email sequence set up the very first email someone gets when they sign up for SendFox is an email from me that says, hey, welcome to SendFox. What's your number one goal with SendFox? What's your number one goal with SendFox? Mm. And the reason why it's phrased that way is people are very bad at saying like, hey, give me these features, but they're very good at telling you what their dreams are. We talk about this a lot in marketing where it's like a great company like Apple or Coca-Cola. Think about Coca-Cola. They're not really talking about, hey, this is an eight ounce bottle and there's like all these ingredients inside. Their commercials are just people laughing and having fun. And their ads are like, hey, if you have a Coca-Cola, you will be happier. And that ties into something very human that we all want to be happier. We want to all be richer. We all want to be better looking. We all want to be healthier, whatever the situation is. Um, So asking what their goals is has been very, very powerful and impactful for us to understand what's going on. 
And in the early phases of a business, we can do that and we only get a few pieces of feedback here and there. And some of our conversations maybe are more direct where we're getting on phone calls with our early customers. At the level of SendFox now, where we're getting somewhere between 3,000 to 4,000 new users a month, uh, we don't need to do that as much because the replies we can start to pattern match. And that's the other thing that's important. We can start to deduce when we get a lot of information. And that's why businesses often become more successful over time. Once they find kind of that foothold, they just really take off because we can start to pattern match and identify and really lock in on what people are saying. And that's what I can do now. I get all those replies directly to my inbox. So every day I probably get 20 to 30 replies. Oh, wow. I read every single one of them and I don't take action or I don't respond on every single one of them, but it helps me understand seeing the same responses being like, okay, I think I heard something like this last week. Or maybe I just never heard anything like that. And then I just ignore it because it's just not relevant to us. But being able to pattern match and understand what users are asking for is something we can do automatically through those things like automations. So do you do that via some like formula or is it just kind of like an organic or natural way? Cause I'm just imagining like, yeah, you're having these people reply directly to you. I've had a spreadsheet before with thousands of pieces of feedback. It's just like, well, I don't even know where to start with this kind of thing. <laughs> so like, how do you actually pick out what's relevant and approach feedback in a way that actually helps make the product better? Mm. So the first thing I do is I triage through me. So our team at at AppSumo Originals is what we call our division that's in charge of SendFox as well as King Sumo, as well as Sumo.com uh, and FAM, is that we want to make sure there aren't too many chefs in the kitchen. And I want to make sure in my job as a leader, and I think this is also valuable for any entrepreneur to think about, my job as a leader is to empower and make sure the team feels like they're heard and to let them do their best work. And I want to take care of kind of the administrative stuff and the high-level strategy and vision so they know the direction they're marching. They know where they're going, and we all know where we're going. Now, when I get this feedback, um, I've done a lot of things in the past, and I think there's some that work well, some that don't work well, some that used to work well, and, and maybe just not where I am in my career aren't as useful. Doing spreadsheets is great because then, especially for the early customers, you can see, hey, 40 people responded. Here's like the 40 quotes they gave exactly. So you can just put in an easy to digest spreadsheet. Now, when we're getting 30 to 40 responses a day, I basically don't do anything with it as far as giving it to the team or putting it in any place. I just kind of pattern match in my head as far as Mm. what comes in and what doesn't come in. Sometimes there are some larger bugs or features that I'm like, that really inspired a good idea or a bug that's like, wow, how did we miss that bug? That's a big issue. And then I can share with the team or put in a spreadsheet or something that requires us to take action. But to me, like my, my general thought on what we're trying to do as entrepreneurs is the most successful people are the ones who can take information and discern what is important and not important. Mm. Right. And you think about, I grew up in New England. So by default, I'm a a New England sports fan because we really have nothing (laughs) else in New England. It's cold all the time. (laughs) But one thing that we, we talk about in New England is Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach. And one thing that you universally hear a lot about Bill Belichick, and I think sports are a great example of, of like business leadership is he's able to discern all this information along with all his assistants and his team and go to the, the, the players every week and say, hey, 
if we do these three things, we'll win. Just do these three things. Just do your job. Don't worry about the noise outside of this. Like, Don't get suckered into thinking other things are important because if we do these three things and execute them well, we will win. And that's what getting this information is like to me, where it's like, I can discern the information as entrepreneurs, we can discern the information where the first step to kind of funnel through the process is we get the information. And then I just kind of discern it through my head. I just let it kind of funnel through my head. So we're continuing to try to funnel the the ideas and the winning strategies down as little as we can. So it goes through my head, or it goes through a spreadsheet or whatever we decide to do at the time. And then from there, we're really trying to focus on what are the most critical things for the business to succeed. When we set our goal for the business, what are the most important things that tie up to our goal and that align with our goal to make sure that we're doing the right things to grow the business and the way we decided the business is successful. Mm. So how do you go about choosing the goal then? Cause that's gotta be a really important component of growth. And I know you and I have talked yeah. about this a lot and it's very important when it comes to the sumo group and how you guys approach goals. So how do you choose the goal initially to start growing Sendbox? Yeah, the um so the goal the goal started very simply. I think it was our first year so we started in September of 2018 and I think by the end of 2018 so roughly what is that 3 months something like that. Mm. We just wanted like 40 to 50 customers or something like that at first. And then we saw a little more success. So we're like, okay, let's up the goal to like a hundred customers or something along those lines. So I, I really like the smart framework and I generally hate like marketing acronyms and all kind of the buzzwords and all this <laughs> other stuff, but the smart framework, I just like the concept of where it's like, okay, let's set goals that are specific. They're measurable. They're action oriented. They are realistic. They're time-based. I think that's the acronym, but the the thing that I see a lot happen with goals are two things. Well, really three things. One is that people don't really have a clear goal. And that's just a huge mistake because it's like driving a car and not knowing where you're going. And maybe that's okay. Like if it's a hobby or something, we all need stuff that we just kind of do for pure enjoyment. So I think that balance is important. But if I'm running a business, that is a big mistake, big mistake, because what tends to happen when that is is the issue is that you have team members doing different things going in different directions so you could go to anyone on the sendfox team right now from our lead developer to one of our support team members to our designer and say what is the sendfox goal and they hopefully and i think they could without looking at our our document that we check in with every week they could say off the top of their head our goal is this and our goal for SendFox is a certain number of people who have sent an email within 30 days of sign up. So establishing the goal, mistake number one that a lot of people don't make, making sure it's clear is very critical. So we know the direction we're going. We're all aligned and we're making decisions that tie up to the goal. The second mistake people make is they have a goal that is not clear. So there's one company I was, I was kind of talking through some growth strategies with recently and they were like, yeah, you know, we just want to like increase revenue and conversions. And I'm like, literally right. every company in the world wants to make <laughs> more money. <laughs> it's like the entire point of a company. Uh, so they do have a goal, which is good. So they're ahead of, of some people, but it's important to be able to establish like a, like a value, like a numeric value. So we know, hey, are we aiming for this? Are we aiming for that? And what's important with that is because once we know the numeric value, we can back into the math. 
So knowing a value, whether it's revenue or number of conversions or number of signups or number of leads, whatever it is, it just becomes a math equation. We can look at the different channels or ideas that we have and say, how do we back into this number? And then the third mistake that I think a lot of people make with, uh, with goal setting is they lose sight of why they started the business and they lose sight of what's fun. So this is something that I received feedback about recently as we're thinking about 2021. And, and what I was told is like, how many of these ideas are you excited about? And I was like, well, some of them, but not all of them. And the thought there is we always have to remember not to lose sight of the forest for the trees. We're like, we mm. start a business and we do a business to change things, to make things better, to be happier, to help people. So when we get too analytical about the process and too analytical about it, it's like we lose our heart from the, the equation. We want right. to make sure that we're bringing our heart into the decisions and we're doing things that make us happy and excited to get out of bed every day and empowered and empower the team and keep us going. So those are the three things I think about with goal setting that I think are really helpful for any entrepreneur to think about. That's, I love that so much. So what, so walk me through specifically when you're, when you're brainstorming with a team, how do you guys choose the goal? Cause if, if you're all doing one goal and you're working on many different components of the business, whether you said customer experience or the, the yeah. person that's working on the tech, do you just kind of have a brainstorming session when you're like, these are all the goals that I think we can focus on and like, let's discuss as a team and let's choose the one that we can all align on? Or what's that process like for actually selecting the one that the whole team can agree on? Yeah, there, there's part of that. What I do realize is a mistake, and I've made this mistake before, is, is ultimately someone needs to be a decision maker. Someone needs to be a decision maker. And there is an element for better or worse nowadays with some businesses where it's like everyone just kind of universally tries to reach an agreement and uh, there's like no hierarchy in the company and no one knows anyone's role and it's like everyone's treated equally. And some of those are important elements where it's like the team should be treated with respect and we should make sure to care about people better than we used to in the old days when it's like people are just working crappy jobs they hate. But... (laughs) Ultimately, what I think is really important is my role as a leader of the business is to say, hey, guys, like I got your feedback and I appreciate it. And based on your feedback, here is what we're going to do. And based on my opinion, here's what we're going to do. And oftentimes it doesn't uh, fit within everyone's vision. Like there's someone who might be a little disappointed. There's someone whose opinion I, I was just like, hey, this is actually not the right decision for that. And I think that's okay because. Again, my job and any leader's job is to make sure that as we build a business, we don't, and it's impossible to keep everyone happy. We have to make decisions to grow the business and to be successful. So when I think about kind of the ideas we set out and and some of the goals we set out, I usually am the one that's like, hey, this is what I think is most valuable based on where I think we are in the business and where we need to be. This is what I think is most valuable. And then we'll get more team feedback about, okay, like how do we accomplish this goal? What are the metrics or what are the levers or what are the opportunities within accomplishing this goal that we can do? And this is directly from from Noah, I've learned this, where he's like, listen, you and any business owner should really think about the direction of the business. It's like, here's where we want to go. And then we give more free reign to people within the business to figure out the best path to get there. And a lot of my team is, is smarter than I am. Like they're a lot smarter than I am uh, in many ways. 
So it's like I can help set the strategy for how the business uh, for how the business thinks of success or what the metric is that we think of success. And then we can all talk about like, hey, how do we get here? How do we accomplish this? What are tactics we can use? What are things that we can come up with together? And we'll usually collaborate on those. And then again, I'll have to be the final decision maker because normally we get a bunch of different opinions and someone has to make decisions like that. And I think it's really important to remember that we can't do everything with just like this beautiful in the like butterflies and just all this amazing (laughs) stuff happening and everyone being happy. Sometimes we have to make hard decisions and we have to make decisions we feel are right for the business, but might annoy some people. Yeah. And just to clarify, in case it comes up again, um, I know we mentioned Noah a few times in passing, but Noah is the founder of Sumo Group, employee number four at Mint and employee number 30 at Facebook. And if I if I got those right, you can fact check me, but but uh, the founder <laughs> of the Sumo Group. So just in case uh, yeah. somebody was mentioning, who's, who's this Noah guy? <laughs> so we, we clarified that. Um, another yep. thing I want to ask, David, I mean, it's really interesting to think about like you getting started and you were able to do this within two years that you brought this from zero to hundred K with zero marketing budget. So for somebody that's just getting started, can you just share with us what the first 30 days were like? Like, um, did you have a product? Like how did you begin to like validate? Mm -hmm. And what was that first 30 days? Like when you got started with Sendfox? Oh boy, man, those were, those were such a blur as far as so much crazy stuff happening, which I think is such a perfect description of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. So, the first 30 days, um, I think there's a lot to be said for for Abraham Lincoln's quote where he's like, give me seven hours to chop down a tree and six hours I'm just sharpening my axe. So the first 30 days, a lot of time was spent on like, what do we want this to be? And also what is success for us? So mm-hmm. going back to what we just talked about, establishing the goal. So the entire team knows the direction that we're marching towards. The entire team knows the direction we're going towards. And then it's more carefully looking at all right, what do I want to do? Who do I want to serve as really important? What am I different? How am I different? And there is something to be said, and I I also think this is really critical for a business. There's something to be said for making sure that the the benefit is very simple and clear. Like in the same company I alluded to earlier that I was helping with some of their strategy, they have a really interesting product that helps people understand some of their investments and and make more money with some passive investments. But the issue is that right now they're trying to like use some verbiage and wording that just makes it so generalized and so uh, unclear who they serve. And there's this fear we have in business, all of us have in business, where it's like, I don't want to alienate people. I want to leave my options open. But in those first 30 days, we have to pick a hypothesis and we have to pick a target market because it makes it much easier to build the business. Mm -hmm. So in those first 30 days, we're like, listen, we have to go after content creators. We know them really well. We think there's a need for that. We don't have to build the complexity of e-commerce integrations like if we went off there, the e-commerce crowd. So let's go after this. And anything in business is adjustable. So that was our thought too. We're like, okay, we'll try this and we'll really go after this target market with this goal. And if it doesn't work, then we'll iterate. And like we mentioned earlier, a lot of it didn't work. The pricing wasn't great. So we had to go back and rethink the pricing. We had to go back and add some really critical features. But once we started to do those things, it started to take off and it started to grow. 
Wow. Well, that I, I love that. <laughs> and I also love the fact that like you were just so lean and understanding too, at the beginning of a, uh, a venture, the fact that you don't need to have everything figured out. It's literally just like, let's look at the next two weeks <laughs> or 30 days. And like, maybe yeah. you found out after 30 days, you didn't even like the product or like serving it. And so you did it super lean. So in mm-hmm. those early days, was it pretty much, you were just directly reaching out to friends and family and like, you were just like, let's, let's get some feedback on it. Is that where you started when you wanted to start figuring out the target market and how to validate it? Yeah, basically, basically what that was true. Although it was within the target market, our friends and family. So sure. uh, no, none of my family is content creators. None of, yeah, our yeah, are, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but the friends is totally true. We knew people on MailChimp and anyone that we were subscribed to newsletter wise that was on MailChimp, we would just respond to and we'd be like, Hey, we have the solution. Most people didn't respond. Most people said no. A lot of people we got on the phone that I would talk to and say, hey, let me show this off for you, would say no. But as time went on, as we did that enough, we started to get more and more people. And as we started to get more and more people, we started to see what features we need to add. And then it creates kind of this snowball effect where it's like, okay, we just got to get like a snowball initially in our hands and then we can push it down the hill and it just grows. And then we're like, oh my gosh, we have this thing that, is it business and making money? Uh, so we did start initially by reaching out to people. And that's a part that is really forgotten about nowadays. It's like everyone just wants to be like, hey, I don't want to put any effort into this business. I just want to create some Facebook ads and I just want to like right. coast. And I'm like, yeah, I also don't want to do anything and make like a lot of money, but that's just <laughs> how things work. So reaching out to people was not only critical because we didn't have that budget, It was critical because it let us interact more closely with those early customers. So we may have slowed down the the first stage of growth a little bit, but it had monumental impact on the business because whereas if we just dumped ads in and just tried to acquire even at a loss, a customer, we were able to say, hey, let's take a step back and let's make sure we're talking to the right people. Let's understand what they're wanting or why they're not signing up. And let's continue to iterate. So we think about the career path of a millennial, for example, let's say who's an entrepreneur. It's like they come out of college and their friend gets a job at McKinsey and their friend's immediately making seventy-five dollars to $80,000 and the entrepreneur is making like $2. <laughs> so at first, if we look at it in a short-term view, we're like, oh, being an entrepreneur is just not a smart idea by those standards. But then you zoom out and you pull back five years later, the McKinsey person maybe got a raise and is making 120, 130. But the entrepreneur, if they keep growing, will be making many times that, will be making multiples of that. So we think about how kind of the same pattern applies to business as it does to our careers, as it does in many ways, where we look at more of the long-term view. And I will gladly slow down the growth of a company a little bit if I think it has more impact down the line, looking at the more long-term view of it. Yeah. And I love the reaching out to people directly. And now you and I are like kind of nerds about that. Well, we'll be like, Hey, check <laughs> yeah. out this sick email. I just sent to someone. Here's a screenshot or look at yeah. this, what I sent. So what, what are some of those, like if somebody's interested in starting to validate idea or validate a product and they are like, okay, let me, I have some people that are in my target market. I have their email address. I'm going to send an email to them. You've sent lots of these, you've mm-hmm. validated lots of products. So what are some of the the specifics that we can use as far as your approach when you're emailing somebody to get them on the phone or to start validating idea, what do those emails look like for you? Yeah. Um, it depends a little bit on the business. So I actually am not a fan 
And this has changed as time has gone on. And it'll probably change again. So don't take this this thing I say as scripture because <laughs> it's probably not going to be six months from now. But I am not a fan of giving away products for free. Yep. I just am not. And here's why. Here, here's kind of why I'm now at that stage. Um, people don't value free. They just like really don't value free. And they often don't give really quality feedback because the types of people that use free products, if they use it at all, are different than the types of people that buy. So you're all often giving away a product for free. You have to support them. They're bugging you all the time. And the feedback they give would be differently would be different than someone who pays. So what I like to do is I like to reach out to people and say, hey, like we have this new product. Here's why we think it's better. If you're interested or if you know anyone that's interested, I would love to talk to you. Something along those lines. And the opportunity there with the if you know anyone is a lot of people reach out and be like, hey, uh, here's this thing I have. Are you interested? And the person will be like, no. And the, the entrepreneur will look at that and say, oh, crap, I'm just not going to get this person. But what we can do is we can leverage that same person to say, okay, cool. No worries. Is there anyone you could introduce me to? Like I'm a new entrepreneur. I'm just trying to test this idea out. I want to see if this has legs and I want to try to build this product. So we have to remember not to stop too early, not to stop where we run into this blocking point and we miss an opportunity for someone to introduce us to another potential customer. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, I love that. And I also want to add to, in, in part of my magic connection method process, it's like the most important part is the, well, there's I, not all the parts are important, but the middle part that I teach <laughs> is called the irresistible offer. And so yeah. to me, when people aren't responding to a message, it's like, okay, it's probably because my offer isn't set up so that they, that it's clearly specified on what value and what results they can expect as right that they will get when they respond to me. So that's something that I always encourage people to look at. It's like, if, if you're not getting positive responses, what can you learn from that as well? Because um, there's so much that you can begin to tweak and optimize if you do things the right way. So, right. And you're a master at that. And I think I learned <laughs> a lot from you on how to do cold outreach, but your point is such a good one where a lot of people will just be like, okay, I sent 35 cold outreach emails and no one responded. And they're bummed about that. Really where the opportunity lies is, okay, I sent five to 10, no one responded. Where do I think this email or cold outreach went wrong? If I'm a person reading this, what would I not have resonated with? And anything we do with outreach is also applicable to business where we think of why is this product not working as well as I want? Or why is this happening? Or why is that happening? But you are so good at outreaches and that's actually how we met. Which is pretty that funny. is how we met a cold email. Like, what is it, three <laughs> years ago? I sent a cold email yeah. to David because I saw all the cool stuff that he was doing. I'm very, very grateful I sent that email. So cold email continue. <laughs> Me <your> too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> awesome. So okay, so let's talk about uh, I know prior to AppSumo, you were working at Student Loan Hero. And I know you mm-hmm. were like their first full-time marketer, and it's yep. an eight-figure bootstrapped SaaS fintech startup, and you were uh-huh. running their email marketing. So Tell us a little bit about, so we talked about direct email, right? So you're just reaching out to one person, validating it. But now let's talk about, you have an email list. 
what are some of the biggest mistakes or biggest things that you see people doing wrong in the email marketing world when they're running a newsletter? And actually you have experience to this too, because not yeah. only did you do it in student loan hero, but you see the back end of users using SendFox. So I'd love to dive into this topic and see some of the biggest mistakes you think people are making when they're yeah. sending their emails to their email list. To me, it's very confused messaging is the number one mistake. So at Ah. Student Loan Hero, what we did very well is we said, hey, our goal is this. It was like X number revenue goal for the company. And then we set the the cascading goals for each marketing channel. So it was like, hey, this is our result, expected result and hope for results and targeted results for email marketing. And every email decision we made tied into that. It tied into that. So when I see a lot of people make mistakes with email marketing now, it's like they send these long emails and there's like some stuff at the top. There's some stuff at the bottom. There's just like, it's just a mixed match of random stuff. <laughs> it makes no sense. So the way I always think about marketing is really kind of a foundation of two things. The first thing is if I am a person reading this piece of marketing material, what would I want to hear? And none of us want to hear about the features. Going back to the Coca-Cola example, it's like they don't talk about the features of their process to like make carbonated soda water. They talk about the features of like just being happy, like how it is to be happy. So when I think of marketing and I think of good emails, I always think of that. I say, what would I be wanting to feel with this email if I was an end user? And how could I, I accomplish that? And then the other thing I think about with email marketing and marketing in general is we're so inundated with so much stuff nowadays. Mm -hmm. So I always like to use simple phrasing and I always like to use short emails and short copy because I visualize my reader as someone who's like on the toilet or running in between appointments (laughs) or like walking down the street as they're also like getting a phone call from their mom. There's so much going on in our lives that I think we're getting back to the point where we want to make sure that our marketing is simple. We want to make sure that our email is simple. So I don't care when I read about marketing myself, I don't care where it's like surfing is a great example you mentioned earlier. I don't care if it's like, Hey, here's this like 40 liter surfboard that has like these features. I want to see surfers just like going to town on that board, just like (laughs) crushing waves looking awesome. And I want the copy to be something like the one board you need for every type of wave, something simple like that. Right. And that's so critical with how we write emails too. It's like, we always try to overcomplicate things as marketers. We try to make it more sophisticated language to show we're smart, to really be unique and different. And it's like half the best email marketing copy and, and most of the best email copy or marketing copy in general I see is like, written like a second grader could understand it. Yep. The best solution for this, feel better, be happier, just stuff like that. That's all we want. We're all just kind of aiming for the same things we were aiming for when we were younger. We just don't need to complicate the wording. (laughs) So much value there because it is super easy to say, oh, I feel like I'm writing an email to 100,000 people when I was running Jonathan's email list of 100,000 people and you lose sight of like at the end of the day, you're ending in one person's email inbox. You're not talking to a hundred. Yes, you are talking to a hundred thousand people, but you need to talk to one person at a time. And like, I'm always looking at how can I make this simpler? If I have a comma, 
how can I turn that into a period and make it into two separate sentences? Like, how can yep. I make it as succinct and tight as possible? And how can I delete half? If I had to delete half this email, what would I delete? Mm, <laughs> and that's a so, great one. Like, yeah. So is, I wanted to ask you too, um, what, if, if I have an email list, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm listening to this right now. I have an email list. I'm sending emails. Mm-hmm. What metrics are you paying attention to when you are running your email marketing and how do you approach optimizing your email marketing? So there are a few metrics that are important with email. Um, The first thing is I would make sure first to establish the goal for the business. So maybe I'm just a solo entrepreneur and I'm like, I want 10 customers this year, right? It doesn't need to be crazy. We need to start from somewhere. So if my goal is 10 customers, my email should tie into that goal where it's like, I'm doing Mm. more sales copy. I'm doing more things to push those customers. Whereas on the other hand, if my goal is just subscribers, let's say I just want a thousand subscribers, then in my emails, I'm putting tons of stuff that's like forward to a friend. If you share this with a friend, you get entered in my free giveaway and I'll give you free stuff. So the metrics are less important if we're not dialed into the goal. The metrics Mm. are very important if we know what the goal is and then we could say what the metrics need to be. I would say generally speaking, when I think of email metrics, I think of a couple of things. So one is I'm looking at subscriber growth to understand the top of the funnel because maybe that's what I care about. Maybe I care about getting more subscribers. I'm looking at open rate to understand if the subscribers I'm getting are quality and my subject lines are quality. So every metric tells a different story. Maybe I have tons of subscribers coming in, but my open rate's lower. And then it's like, oh, wait, some of those subscribers might be terrible subscribers. Or I used a bad subject line that just doesn't resonate with my subscribers. And then I'm also looking at things like click rate uh, and unsubscribe rate because click rate tells me even deeper down the funnel, hey, I got this new subscriber. They were interested enough to open the email. Are they interested enough to click in the email? And that tells me how serious they are. It's kind of like thinking of customer levels or, or qualities as like, this is, this is my true fan. In, in some ways. And then unsubscribe tells me the inverse of that, where it's like, hey, if I have un- high unsubscribe rates, then people just don't like my content for whatever reason. And that might be because I got some bad subscribers. That might be because I'm sending stuff that isn't resonating as much. That might be for another reason. But each of those metrics tells us a different story. And each of them can be an important metric or the most important metric, depending on our goal. So at some points with the student loan example, student loan here example you gave, um, clicks were our number one metric. And then another one was unsubscribe rate. And there are tons of different metrics that we can pull from. But at a high level, that's how I look at the different email marketing metrics that we can pull from. Thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to ask also, because I know you had the rare opportunity to kind of talk to like a quote unquote Google celebrity in the sense that like, (laughs) if I remember correctly, I think you tell me about this. It's like, I got to talk to somebody that's like, you know, let me just back up and saying that the majority of email users are Gmail users. So like Gmail gets to kind of like have this overseeing perspective of governing the email experience because so many users are Gmail. And so you had the opportunity to talk to one of the gmail gods quote unquote that that is dictating <laughs> if you're ending up in spam or promotion so what are some of the things that you learned from that conversation that 
can help us to actually get our emails delivered properly. Because that's something that I feel like lots of people don't even understand is like sometimes if they're not opening your email, it's because it ended up in spam or a promotions filter and they didn't even get a chance to see it. So what did you learn from those conversations that we can take away? Yeah, that was crazy. It's like the Google anti-spam team is like, uh, I don't even know, like the Wizard of Oz. You're just like, what goes on (laughs) behind the curtain of just like these hundreds of millions of emails per day. And then your point, we've seen statistically that roughly 60 to 70% of a typical email list is made up of Google email addresses, meaning Gmail or G Suite addresses. So when we want to think about the Pareto principle at work or the 80-20 rule at work, optimizing towards Gmail is critical. And because most inboxes are used by Gmail addresses, also most inbox providers follow their best practices eventually, mm-hmm. right? So what Gmail does now is often trend and and the baseline for the industry, whether a few months later or a few years later, whatever it is. So what we learned at the time, and this was about a year ago and things have changed probably even more, maybe even two years ago, uh, is that marking an email as spam is like basically the worst thing that can happen to an email being sent. Unsubscribes aren't that bad. They're not that bad, which was surprising to me. So I think the rationale there from what I kind of deduced when he was saying that is giving people the option to unsubscribe is totally fine. So they don't really look at unsubscribes as that poor of a metric. But getting an email marked as spam is a really poor metric. So the way you avoid going into spam is just not getting marked as spam and also making sure people are opening your emails and engaging with your emails. And the way you don't get your email marked as spam is don't buy lists, don't borrow lists, don't scrape lists, don't add a bunch of people who haven't consented to being on your email list to your email list because they will mark those as spam because they never signed up. Mm -hmm. And on the engagement side, what we heard is, getting people to open your email and engage with your email is really important. And a lot of people will say, Hey, I just want to write a great subject line and get people to open my email. But that's not the right way to look at it nowadays because engagement kind of like SEO, there are a lot of parallels between how Google treats SEO for different pages and how they treat their email is also how long are they reading your email? How much are they scrolling in your email? So it's become an all-encompassing email engagement score. So you'll see a lot of affiliate marketers and spammers will have these subject line that's like open within 20 minutes or like, I'm so sorry, we're almost sold out, blah, blah, blah. And then their email copy in the email will just be like total garbage. So we want to make sure that we're not only optimizing for engagement to get the opens, but we're optimizing with quality email copy to get people to read the email, click in the email, engage with the email, however, uh, keep it in front of them for a little bit longer, whatever it looks like. We want to make sure we're looking at the whole picture. What are your, some of your favorite copy resources? Cause some of the people uh, copywriting is something that I'm obsessed with. You and I are both obsessed with but like, what <laughs> yeah. are, what are some of the top resources to be a better writer? Cause at the end of the day, we're talking about email, but at the end of the day, it is really about writing, you know, like, so that's, yeah. that's what it kind of boils down to. So what are some of your favorite copy resources and how does one improve as a copywriter? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so bad at this question, man, because, um, I, I don't read like any marketing blogs anymore. Um, and I think, you know, it's funny because you and I talked about, (laughs) (laughs) nice. You and I talked about the career path of someone and and we kind of talked about, uh, how there, there is this somewhat famous entrepreneur, 
who was like, yeah, you know, in my twenties, I wish I was more relaxed and I didn't do all this stuff. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, you remember now. And, um, the thought is like, well, yeah, it's easy to say because you did that in your twenties and now you are where you are partially because you worked so hard. So I think there is a time and a place. And I remember reading a lot of copy stuff when I was in my twenties, my early twenties. And now that I'm in my early thirties, I think times have changed. So what I really think about now is just like, how am I thinking differently? How am I thinking differently? And I mentioned this with the products in the beginning where it's like, there's so many copycat products out there that don't do anything differently. How are we creating different products? And in order to create different products, how am I connecting these different neural pathways? So when I think about really good copywriting and when I think about really good stories, um, I like movies actually for that, which is like kind Mm. of a weird parallel, but just like how do movies hold our attention? I also just like love reading just like random stories online. I love watching random YouTube videos and thinking about, okay, like I really enjoyed this Mr. Beast video, for example. How did he hold my attention? How did he do that? Was it part of the writing? Was it part of like the flow of kind of organization, whatever happens with that? So none of the traditional stuff I follow anymore. Um, I really just look at things I enjoy and try to kind of analyze why I enjoy them a little bit more. Somebody asked me the other day, how did you get into, how did you learn your marketing? How did you learn your, how did you learn entrepreneurship? And you're right. I think I started to approach the same way where it was like, yeah, in the, in the beginning, I was just subscribing to a hundred email newsletters and listening yeah, to everything I could get my hands on to. And th- that, that's really important in the beginning, but I think it's true. The best entrepreneurs that I know today, the best marketers I know today, they just have their fingers on the pulse of what makes humans do what humans do. And so like that actually does come in the form of watching a movie, of consuming a YouTube video. I always make my my wife always makes fun of me because I'm always taking pictures of like billboards <laughs> or like signs in the grocery store because I'm like, yeah. oh, this is so interesting on how they were able to engage people. So I, I love that yeah. that was your answer actually because like at the end of the day, the best teacher is our day-to-day experiences and understanding what makes humans actually do what they do. So I also right. wanted to ask kind of a selfish question for myself, but I think it would be very valuable for people listening to one of the issues we ran into um, when I was running email marketing at Superhuman Academy. And I think this is a very common mistake that people have is like they'll create 30 email lists, 30 lists, or they'll try to segment into like a million different ways. And it just gets really messy with like right. all these lists and like segmenting. So how do you organize your list inside of your email service provider? And how do you recommend somebody should approach segmentation? Because I know it's probably hard. It's easy to try to segment earlier on when it's not even necessary. So how do you mm-hmm. approach that? Yeah, I think a lot of that stuff is kind of noise for for beginners and for new entrepreneurs. The most important thing for us as entrepreneurs in those early stages is like, what is my goal and, and what do I need to do to accomplish that goal? And ignoring the rest. <laughs> I love you keep going back to this. It's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny how, how that repeats itself. But with with automations and sequences, I see that a lot where people are like, okay, let me write 35 different emails for this one onboarding sequence. And it's like, dude, if you have to write 35 emails to explain your product, you just don't have a good product. Right. The truth <laughs> is, and marketers don't want to, uh, admit this a lot of times, the best marketing is just a really good product. Think about all the great products. And here's a great example. When was the last time you bought a book on Amazon because it was displayed as like a recommended book on Amazon versus how many times have you bought a book because a friend is just like, yo, this book is great. You should read this book. Right. Most people 
do it because a friend passes along kind of the word of mouth. So when I think of, of businesses, I think of that as well. And that also applies to the automation sequencing where the sequencing I think of for like the segmentation and welcome emails and all that stuff is we don't do much of it. We really don't do much of it. It's like, Hey, we have a new user come in. They're added to a new user list. They're sent that email. I alluded to at the beginning where it's like, welcome, what's your number one goal? A few weeks later, they're sent an email that's like, hey, can you leave us a review? Because we realize with a $0 marketing budget, word of mouth on Trustpilot, as well as Product Hunt, as well as uh, AppSumo, where our product is listed, mm-hmm. is really important to get more good reviews. And then the third email we send is, what's the number one thing you hate about SendFox, which is a few weeks after that. Mm. So we're trying to attack it from a different angle where it's like, okay, you have this goal, this vision. Now you've the product for X amount of time. What's the thing that annoys you the most about the product to try to understand what's going wrong. And we keep it that simple, man. It's really, we don't complicate it more than that. We don't have all these crazy segmentation lists at our stage. And I, I think there is a time and place for that, but for any business, for most businesses that are below eight figures, it's like, there's so much, so much more that is more valuable to spend time on than learning to segment. Mm-hmm. I could recommend people spending their time on like understanding their customers better or thinking of a new product line that would 10 X a revenue. Whereas you're just going to see incremental improvements with trying to segment a little bit better. Yeah. Three emails. That's it. I love how simple that is. Three. And I want to, I want to point, I want to point out a small thing that, that David does too, is like they're asking questions and getting people to reply. And from my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, David, one of the most important metrics for quality of an email is it's mm. like open, open is good. Click is even better, but reply is even the best because they see yeah. that people are actually engaging it's with your email. Point. So in the very yep. beginning of those email automations, getting people to reply um, is, is a huge indicator for the email service provider that you're sending quality content because you're yeah. an engaged, engaged user. It's a great point. Yeah, I should have mentioned that earlier. I'm glad you caught me on that. Replies are another thing that's really valuable to go for and that shows the quality of an email to Gmail and these other inbox providers. Yeah, critical. Awesome. Well, David, this has been this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all these crazy experiences with your marketing and growing something from a $0 ad budget. I mean, I guess another question I want to kind of ask in in wrapping things up is sure. you, if you knowing what you know now that you've done SendFox and maybe you've already answered this the same way. So maybe you could just tell me, ask a different question, Brandon. <laughs> uh, but if you had, to, if you were start, actually, this is a good question because you are starting over with another kind of product. Uh, so uh-huh. I'll, I'll let you talk about that. So like if you're starting yeah. over brand new from scratch, you're launching a brand new thing. How, what does the first seven days look like when you're getting started from the very beginning? Oh boy. Yeah, we are planning to do this in 2021. We're thinking of launching more products and nothing is set in stone quite yet, but this is is the leading candidate for kind of our, our tactical uh, approach to the metrics that we want. So the first seven days, I think is really critical to do a couple of things. One is establishing that goal again, but from a product perspective and a launching perspective, what we're trying to figure out is we're trying to figure out what are the most important features that we want within this product. What are the most important features? Because we want to come up with an MVP version that is still pretty effective, that is still uh, useful. So when we think of this product, there's so many paths we can go down. There's so many features that we can go down and create, but most critical is figuring out what are those 
key features at first that people care about the most that are, are most important to get results. So I'd say that's a critical use of time in the early stage. Um, and then just kind of from like a development design perspective, I think also just making sure everyone is really aligned and getting the wheels in motion is really important, really important. So making sure that we have a good design for our our concept of what we want this product to do, making sure that we have a good timeline for the product. So getting all the administrative stuff out of the way is really uh, the best option, kind of like that Abraham Lincoln saying I was mentioning earlier, where it's like seven hours to chop down a tree, six hours you're going to spend just like sharpening the ax. So if we have a month to build a product, which is what we want to do, we want to build a product in January and launch it. If we have a month to do that, the first week, is going to be spent almost exclusively just on making sure that we have the concept down and we know what we want to create. And then the second and third weeks are actually creating that, making sure that we're not missing anything, getting some feedback. And then the fourth week is actually launching the product. Love that, that there's so much time spent in preparation because it's so easy as an entrepreneur getting started or launching a new product or anything. It's like, oh man, I feel like I'm not making progress or like I need to be hitting all these kinds of metrics. But the most important stuff is making sure that you're solving the right problem to begin with. (laughs) Because if you're solving the wrong problem, then you just wasted the whole month anyways. So thank you. Yeah, exactly. Um, Kind of rapid fire. Any favorite tools that you're using right now that you could be an app, it could be a desktop thing for your computer. Um, what are some of your favorite tools that you're using right now? Uh, so I did get a new iPhone. I got an iPhone 12. Uh, nice. I really like that for the camera. That's really nice. Um, besides that, the Oculus Quest 2 is very interesting to me. And I got that. So that's a VR headset. <laughs> and the reason why I think that's very interesting is because there's something with VR that's fascinating. And as an entrepreneur, I always want to stay ahead of the curve as far as some products that I think are cool. And again, there's a lot that I ignore. There's a lot of noise I ignore, but I think the headset is a very interesting piece of technology. So those two things, but I will also say the thing I like about this iPhone is I don't check it that much. I don't know why, but I don't check it as much as my other phone. So I, my biggest tool is that I'm not checking my phone. (laughs) I love, I love that, uh, way of answering the question without answering the question. That's really powerful. <laughs> I, th- I think that it goes back to the very beginning of what David said is like, if you want to actually have these next level insights, it's not about more tools. It's actually about less tools and less distraction, less noise. So yeah. Awesome. Well, David, where can people find out more about the work that you're doing and fi- like follow you online? Sure. So my personal blog is dmkthinks.org. So DMK thinks I write really short blog posts, uh, every once in a while. It's very sparingly (laughs) trying to grow our business. I don't have time to write. Um, And then we do have sendfox.com as well as kingsumo.com as well as sumo.com as the three originals products. So if you want to see what we're creating and a lot of the information we talk about, practically speaking, I encourage anyone listening to go sign up for free and just see like, okay, this is how the onboarding sequence works. This is how the simplicity process You'll see a lot of practical examples to to bring to light the things that we mentioned kind of abstractly on the call. Absolutely. And I am a huge fan of all those products personally. I <laughs> I've spent thousands of dollars on AppSumo as well, which David, I don't think is yes. that considered a, it's one of the originals as well, I guess, too, is AppSumo. So if you guys are looking for so, some sweet Yeah. Go ahead. It's like the parent company or what we now consider to be like the overarching company. So yeah. 
Got it. Yeah. So go get some sweet lifetime deals on AppSumo. I'm always spending lots of money on there as well because they do great work. (laughs) So thank you so much, David. This has been a blast. And I know people are going to have lots of actionable takeaways. I just think that David is one of the number one guys that if I'm wanting feedback on something, I'm asking David for feedback because he just has such great clarifying (laughs) questions, making sure that it's based in fundamentals. So really appreciate you. Thanks for being my friend, David. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, man. This is truly a pleasure. And I encourage people to to look into what you do as well. And my parting words for people will be, uh, we talk about a lot of abstract things on this call, but see who's actually doing it. So someone like Brandon is actually doing it. There are a lot of people that are actually doing it. Don't get suckered into information from people that don't do it because there's a lot of stuff out there written by people who haven't actually done it. Whereas if you're trying to learn cold outreach or anything like that, Brandon's done it and Brandon's done it really (laughs) well. So make sure your sources are correct and you're going to the right people and learning from the right people. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And I I realized that I I usually ask this question that I didn't ask. So I'm glad I just remembered it. If you were to kind of put a bow on all all this stuff that we talked about and they could only take away a few things, what would you want those one or two things to be from this conversation and all the experience that you've had uh, as an entrepreneur and marketer? Mm. So the first thing is have faith it'll work out. So Mm. when we talked about my career path, it's like I have friends growing up who are like from day one, as far as I can remember, I knew I wanted to do that thing. Whereas for me, I didn't know that until really kind of recently when I look backwards at my career path and I'm like, you know what? I love helping entrepreneurs and small business owners. I like creating products for them and I like empowering people to do that. So have faith that even if you don't know what you're doing right now, just kind of follow the energy and it'll work out as it works out. Uh, and the second thing is we, we do better when we hold ourselves accountable and I mentioned it 35,000 times during this call, this call, but set that goal, <laughs> set that vision, and everything can kind of cascade down from that vision for metrics, for numbers, for ideas, for features. If we know the direction, the direction we're going, it makes all that stuff a lot easier. Awesome. Thank you so much, David. Everybody go check out dmkthinks.org, Sendfox, King Sumo, Sumo, App Sumo. Figure out more <laughs> of what David, David's got going on. And All thanks again so much, David. <laughs> Thank you.